Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. It's a big show, jam-packed, so let's get right at it. Later in the show, we'll meet Irish-Canadian playwright, novelist, and screenwriter Emma Donahue. Her 2010 novel, Room, was nominated for the Booker Prize and an international bestseller. She was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay for Room when they turned it into a film, and has since released a number of best-selling novels, including The Wonder and her latest, Learned by Heart, which was shortlisted for the 2023 Atwood Gibson Writers Trust Fiction Prize. The new novel is based on the true story of two girls who fall secretly, deeply, and dangerously in love at a boarding school in 19th century York. More on that later on in the show. First, let's get to know a Canadian legend. Ken Dryden is a household name. In the NHL, he backstopped the Montreal Canadiens to six Stanley Cup championships in eight seasons. He's an officer of the Order of Canada and a member of the Hockey Hall of Fame. He was a Liberal Member of Parliament from 2004 to 2011 and Minister of Social Development from 2004 to 2006. In 2017, the NHL counted him in history's 100 Greatest NHL Players, he received the Order of Hockey in Canada in 2020. He's also an author. His books include the best-selling The Game and Face Off at the Summit. His new book is The Class, a memoir of a place, a time, and us. A look back to Class 9G at Etobicoke Collegiate Institute. Here's Ken Dryden and more on the book. Well, I'm going to set this up a little bit. On Tuesday, September 6th, 1960, the day after Labor Day, Class 9G at the Etobicoke Collegiate Institute in a suburb of Toronto assembled for the first time. It was 35 students having written special exams, which came to be known as the Selected Class. They would stay together through high school with few exceptions. You were one of the 35. And for your new book, The Class, you decided to try and find the classmates to see how they are and what they're doing and how life has been for them. First of all, so that we can kind of understand what the story, the very root of the story is, is why were you put together in this very special selected class? Well, it was it was at a time when um, education was starting to change, and 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 I think during the fifties and coming out of the Second World War, um, there was just this immense sense of possibility that existed in Canada, existed in the United States. Um, so much of the rest of the world was in shambles, and and this was this was our time. And and what was going to trigger that time, maybe more than anything, was education. Um, almost all of our parents had not gone to university. Very few had. Uh, many hadn't finished high school. And they saw this world around them that was um, um, that was starting to become special. And they were seeing like if 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 they, the their, their non-educated selves had been able to create this world, what could our educated sons and daughters do? And so it was their absolute dream more than anything else that we go to university. And then the trigger of that is that how can we do special things before that? So almost all of us in our class had been in accelerated uh, classes in elementary school. 
where we had taken three grades in two years. Mm. And then there were special exams that were given, in this case, in four um, central Etobicoke elementary schools for this particular class. I think it's worth noting here, 1960, there's only 13 million people in Canada. So it's a much different time, but a very exciting time. As you say, post-World War II, things are changing at a pace that I think was unheard of before then. As you were put in this class, did you feel special? Did you feel chosen? Yes, yes, uh, yes, I did. I think we did. And our parents felt that way about living in this suburb um, of, of Etobicoke. And, and I mean, if you can imagine their lives beforehand, they were in, in most instances only a couple of generations away from coming to Canada. Mm -hmm. Almost every one of them grew up in working class circumstances. Um, almost all had been born during World War I. Um, they had reached young adulthood uh, in the Depression. They had their, you know, their, their formative adult lives shaped by the Second World War. And all of a sudden, we were born in either 1947 or 1946. And into this Canada that was moving from kind of dingy, dark, downtown, grimy uh, areas into the suburbs. I mean, the, the suburbs, different from the kind of understanding that we have about the suburbs now, to our parents, this was this was Shangri-La. I mean, this was space. This was new schools, new churches, new playgrounds, new arenas, teachers that were young that were going to be uh, a part of these new schools. And, and so that excitement was absolutely in the air. You're listening to Ken Dryden on The Richard Krause Show. His book, The Class, A Memoir of a Place, a Time, and Us, is available wherever you buy fine books. You have gone on since then to accomplish so much. Has this stayed with you? Clearly it has. You've written a book about it now, but it has stayed with you. Why return to it now? Why return to this story in this part of your life now? Well, I think it's, it, it's not just returning to this part of life. It's at, you know, that I'm, I'm 76 years old now. Um, and and um, I mean, this is a moment where one looks back. Uh, uh, it particularly became that time for us through COVID. I mean, and, and that's when our conversation started. It started about three months uh, before COVID hit. And which is just that perfect time to start to think about some things that you there's more time there's fewer distractions we're of a certain age there's you know you go down into the basement and you rummage through things <laughs> i mean those kinds of things happen at that time and i think that the you know the question for me and and it's not just a, um, a question out of this particular time is that how did we get from there to here i mean how is it possible that, that uh, us as individuals got from there to, to our here today, uh, in almost every case, a surprise. I mean, none of us uh, imagined the lives we were going to live. I, I never thought I was going to be a hockey player. Um, that I surprised I would... me. When I read that, that I found very surprising, only because 
that is the pinnacle for so many people. And it just wasn't the no, part of your young life. Because it didn't seem possible. I mean, that, that, that the NHL was this thing that we saw on Saturday night on television. And, and as anything that came over television, it was, it was unreal. It was separate. It was distant. It was impossible to make the connection um, to. And, and so I love playing. I wanted to play as long as a coach didn't tell me I couldn't play anymore. But at best, I understood that would be to the end of junior B, to call play university hockey, and that that would be the end of it. But but you know that's just the beginning of our of life surprises. I'm sure for you. I mean, when you think back to when you were 10, 15 years old, I suspect that you didn't imagine that your life at your age now would be what what it is. And and it's the same for the country. I mean, that any any kind of biography or autobiography or memoir is always a life and times, and 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 so. It, it, it's a chance to look at the times that we went through and to where things are now. And, and, and of course, as, as you get into now, um, I mean, the, the now becomes very central to our lives, our kids, our grandkids, what their futures are going to be, how will they find their ways to their, you know, their, you know, as they, yeah. as they get there. I mean, you know, so so this is this is a little bit about those five years um, uh, that we spent together, and a whole lot more of who we were when we arrived on that day and the, after Labor Day in 1960, and then who we came to be afterwards, and most particularly how and why, and with all of the kinds of twists and turns and moments that could be transformational. They were for some, they weren't for others. How did that happen? Why did this life tragedy, um, you know, just completely upend somebody and not somebody else? And um, so it's, you know, it, 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 it's a very contemporary book and one that, that, that uses that, you know, almost as a device of, of, of finding 35 people that had something in common and then following life following a, a place um, through time into the present and of course into the imaginable future. Mm -hmm. I mean one of the things that that shocked me as I was writing it as I always thinking of it of a, as a from there to here, well then once the story got to here, the story doesn't end. It's like okay not now what? Now I've got to start to you know deal with not just the present, but what the next steps and the next stages are. And, you know, and when you're 76 years old, those are challenging steps and big questions to ask yourself. And, and it was all of us going through all of this. Your life has been so well documented uh, over the years. Uh, did you learn anything from revisiting, going back, talking to these people who have had wildly different experiences from you? Uh, but we all have the same thing that bonds us. We're all Canadians. We all live by and large, probably most of them still live here. Um, but but your life took a, a, a much different turn. It has been, as I said, well documented. Did this bring up anything for you? that you hadn't thought of for some time? 
Yeah, lots of stuff. I mean, really, it like like you know, really right through it. I mean, that one of the things that I that I really hadn't thought about before. I mean, I I knew that my father was born in Domain, Manitoba. I knew that our the family, our Dryden family, came from Scotland in 1834. I knew that my mother's family was from the Ottawa Valley. Um, I knew those things, but I didn't kind of piece together how, in fact, it means that we weren't that, you know, that, that we grew up not that distant from very seemingly distant times. I mean, from from our own immigration experience. And then, and then thinking about um, my, I mean, my father always called himself a grade, you know, grade 11 dropout. Um, and, and, but, but dropping out at that time was what you did. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that school was not something that, that, you know, that was imaginable for everybody through the end of high school. In fact, the responsible thing was to get on with it, to get on with your life, to help out at home, you know, with uh, bringing a paycheck, you know, all, all of those kinds of things. And so to think in terms of, of us who grew up in a middle class existence, that we, you know, that, that our, 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 our families really were working class and with working class sets of understandings and expectations and, and any kind of new middle class experience as they were living out of the Second World War tempered by having gone through the depression, having gone through World War II. Uh, I, I can remember, you know, my, my parents, you know, saying to me, you know, don't get too up on this. I mean, don't, don't, don't get too full of yourself. Don't, you know, this thing can turn. Things aren't always good. They can flip in a second. And so when the good times hit, they were always kind of looking over their shoulder for the bad times to arrive. And so all of these things, you know, right through, um, you know, there was just surprise after surprise after surprise. And just as you know, in the writing that you do, that's what you write for. You don't write for what you know. You write for those things that you discover, the things that you didn't know you knew. And, and that's the pleasure of it. Even as you were so famous as a hockey player, uh, did your parents still think, be careful out there, that this, this could all go away? Well, I, I mean, I think that, <laughs> I mean, that they never thought it was going to arrive. I mean, that was the, that was the first part. You're listening to Ken Dryden on The Richard Krause Show. His book, The Class, A Memoir of a Place, a Time, and Us, is available wherever you buy fine books. And I mean, they, they, just, they just didn't think of me as, 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 as an NHL player. And, and, but yes, I mean, absolutely. I mean, it was always, you know, don't get a big head. Don't mm -hmm. get too full of yourself. Um, I mean, those were the, the constant references to us through our childhood about anything. When something goes well, you know, just just be careful. Understand why they've gone well. And you, you have to make them go well, and you have to make them go well in the future. This book is, by and large, a book about memory and memories as well. People uh, that you interviewed were talking about things that happened in our lives. And I, I just have this, this theory that we're all just made of memories. Every, the way that we react to anything in the present day is because uh, we have a memory of something that informs that. 
And uh, so you're, you're delving into the memories of all these people. So as a writer, as someone who's written a lot of nonfiction, I have to ask, do you do research in that sense? Or was this really organic and you just really relied on the memories and the, and the, the interactions with these people to lead you wherever it was going to lead you? It's mostly the latter because, because we live to our memories Mm -hmm. Uh, that, you know, that, that our memory may be wrong, but it's our memory. It's what we think is right. And that we make our next decision, you know, based on what it is we think is right. And as I say in the book is that, I don't know if my memory is right. I don't know if the other 34, you know, students, their memories are right. We can't know that. And and that I think that what we do, and this was when you asked the question earlier about, you know, what what you learn along the way. One of the things I learned in part was this, but in part it was, it's how I think that what we are all trying to do is make sense, is, is find a coherence in our, to our story. Mm-hmm. To all of those memories, which really they could add up a hundred different ways. You know, something that happened to you, you could decide, oh man, that's that's tragic. I'll never get over that. I'll never be the same person. Or you can decide, you know, same thing happened, but you can understand it for yourself in a different kind of way. And I think that's what all of us do with with memory is that we're just trying to make sense of all of those things that are there, trying to write a story that is coherent for us and a story we can live with. Mm-hmm. That, that, that it, it's our story. It's, it's, it's something that you, you know, that you don't have inflicted on you necessarily. You can, you can have your own take on it and, and have it go in this direction rather than in, in, in that direction. And, and that was, and uh, yeah, I mean that was very, um, very significant for me to to sort of come to that. I mean, as again, you know, you're 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 talking to all of these different people, and and they're talking about high school memories and things like that, and oftentimes very differently. Mm-hmm. I love this teacher. I hated this teacher. You know, you remember when this happened? I don't remember when this happened, but I remember it happening a certain other way. I mean, all of those things. But we live according to what it is we do remember. Mr. Dryden, thank you so much. What a pleasure to speak to you. Great to speak with you. Thanks a lot, Richard. That was Ken Dryden on The Richard Krause Show. His new book is called The Class, a memoir of a place, a time, and us. And it's available wherever you buy fine books. And it's a fascinating read. He's an interesting guy. Glad we got to spend that time together. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Let's meet Irish-Canadian playwright, novelist, and screenwriter Emma Donoghue. Her 2010 novel, Room, was a finalist for the Booker Prize and an international bestseller. She was also nominated for an Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay for her screenplay for Room. And since then, she's released a number of best-selling novels, including The Wonder and her latest, Learned by Heart, which was shortlisted for the 2023 Atwood Gibson's Writers Trust Fiction Prize. The new novel draws on years of investigation and Ann Lister's 5 million word secret journal. 
Learned by Heart is the long-buried love story of Eliza Rain, an orphan heiress banished from India to England at age six, and Anne Lister, a brilliant, troublesome tomboy who meets at the Manor School for Young Ladies in York in 1805 when they're both 14 years old. Emma Donahue joined me via Zoom. You have said... And this is the quote. It's hard not to describe myself as one of Anne's ex-girlfriends. So 30 years ago, you discovered Anne Lister uh, in a Cambridge bookstore. Rainy day. It's 1990-ish. What was it about uh, this collection of decoded entries uh, that grabbed your imagination and then held it for three decades? I know you wrote a play in there somewhere as well, but 30 years is a long time to have this story knocking around in your head. Anne Lister has a remarkable voice. It's the kind of Extraordinary diary that if it didn't happen to contain scandalous lesbian affairs, it would have been published in multiple volumes by a university press a long time ago. But because of the scandal factor, it has languished. Um, now, luckily, through the efforts of, of many scholars and librarians and hundreds of fans who've signed up as codebreakers, it is gradually becoming available, um, at least in kind of a raw transcribed form on the internet. But yeah, Anne Lister just, you know, had this very sharp mind and these very broad interests and she wrote interestingly and frankly about everything from her bowel movements to the little social subtleties of Halifax to her affairs with women so she's just she's a great flavorful social commentator and she has this remarkably modern identity as well in that she she sort of puzzled over her desire for women and her gender nonconformity in terms that are really more like the 21st century she she almost boasted of being proud of her oddity and she was intrigued by how unique she was in the world that wasn't a common attitude in the regency period well interesting that you hired uh 14 women to decode uh, the uh, correspondence between Lister and Rain, uh, and uh, there is five million words. I mean, this is a, a huge amount of work. What did you learn uh, from the decoding? We talked about that a little bit in that last answer. So tell me a little bit at first, hey, what the decoding was or what the coding was, and then what you learned in the decoding. Sure, I, I should say all these people are volunteers. Hundreds of people volunteered to transcribe um, Lister's diaries, which are about 85% in plain English, but just very difficult handwriting and, you know, often crosshatched. 15% right. in a code that Anne Lister devised herself out of numbers and Greek symbols. She was that kind of scholar. <laughs> um, and she used that for anything she was a little embarrassed about, like money and sex, you know, anything private. Um, what I really needed, though, had not been transcribed, and this was about 100 letters between Anne Lister and her first girlfriend, Eliza Rain. And these, you know, the, the letters are this whole other corpus of text, so they hadn't been transcribed yet. So I reached out and 14 of these code breakers said, yeah, they would be happy on a purely generous volunteer basis to, to transcribe the letters for me. So that's an example of the kind of, you know, generous collaborative spirit in the kind of Anne Lister world, I would say. Um, all very much prompted by the the TV series Gentleman Jack. I mean, I've been obsessed with Anne Lister since the 90s, but um, many people have only heard of her still, since Sally Wainwright's remarkable TV series. Um, so it's a, this is a rare example of a novel for me, which, yes, it included lots of work on my part, but also aspects of it were really crowds, crowdsourced. 
Well, you wrote a play when you were in your 20s about her called I Know My Own Heart. Are there echoes of that play uh, in this novel? There must be to some extent. Well, just in that she's the same character. But yes, I, I, I freely adapted that play from the first book of excerpts of Anne Lister's Diaries where she's in her 20s. You're listening to Emma Donahue on The Richard Krause Show. Her new novel, Learned by Heart, is available wherever you buy fine books. And then The Gentleman Jack TV Show by Sally Wainwright is about Lister in her 40s. But what I wanted to do in this novel was go all the way back to when Anne Lister was 14 at this troublesome, rule-breaking tomboy sent off to boarding school. And she happened to be placed in an attic room with a similar outsider who was different in all the details. Eliza Rain was a biracial orphan heiress who'd been mm. sent off by her English father from Madras at the age of six, completely cut off from her Indian life and um, really thoroughly Englished, as they would have put it. Um, and so these two, you know, outsiders at the manor school were, were basically stuck in a room together and fell madly in love. So in a way, I, I set myself the challenge of writing about something long before any of the diaries, long before we have detailed testimony. So I was trying to kind of, somebody described it as like trying to imagine an origin story for a superhero, you know, what might have happened to Anne Lister at 14, which could possibly have allowed her to bloom into the extraordinary kind of commanding figure that she was later. You say that while you were writing Learned by Heart, that you were mostly interested in uh, Rain. Uh, I guess she was more of the outsider character. Is that a, a good take on that? Yes, and it's partly because Anne Lister, you know, over the decades in which I've been obsessed with her, she has gathered so many fans and she's been able to sort of speak to the world by her diary becoming available and by her presence, say, in the TV show Gentleman Jack, whereas Eliza Rain is still a totally obscure figure. I mean, so much has been lost, especially as she ended up in an asylum. We don't know um, even her mother's name. Her mother just turns up in the sources as Dr. Rain's woman, as if she was a chattel. Right. Um, we don't know uh, what ethnic group or religion or her mother's background was. Um, so there's so much about Eliza that is mysterious and especially, you know, why she kind of lost her mind in her early 20s. So I suppose a novel is always trying to answer questions and fill in mysteries and fill gaps. So yes, I found my, as, as, I, as I planned the novel and then gradually started to write it, I found my um, my my interest in in getting to the, into the head of Eliza really took central place. And I suppose you never want to be just echoing a, fa a, a text. You don't want to take somebody somebody's diary and just sort of turn it into a novel. You're always trying to to you know do what hasn't been done, and in particular, give voice to somebody who's been left out of the story. In the surviving correspondence between them, Rain only mentions once being a young lady of color. And yes, and that's, that's her phrase. Interesting for, it. for the time, yes. Yeah, race was this great unspoken. She didn't talk about it. Her friends didn't talk about it. Everyone acted as if there was no difference. And yet, you know, there were so few people of color. I mean, there were more of them in London, but in York at the time, she would have been one of the only faces around, which wasn't white. Um, so it was this awful unspoken. And I know that it was awful in some ways, you know, that there was a huge amount of racism bubbling under the surface because Rather later, when, when Rain fought with her English guardians, suddenly there's this cluster of letters from her guardian's friend, you know, excoriating Eliza Rain in the most vividly racist terms. So clearly it was all there just under the surface. So as long as Eliza never put a foot wrong and was absolutely charming and ladylike and beautiful and virtuous and hardworking, 
People wouldn't say nasty things about her, but she couldn't step over the line. So in a way, Eliza Wayne had to be conformist. She had to try and, you know, stick within the lines. Whereas Anne Lister, the white English girl, could afford to break a lot of rules and still feel that she was perfectly valid. So they're a really interesting pair of figures. They had such different um, strengths, such different challenges. One of the themes in the novel, I think, is uh, searching for a place to belong, searching to be uh, accepted. Yeah, I think Eliza Rain, you know, orphaned by the time she was 10, didn't get on with her one sister, um, very isolated by her ethnic identity and her background. And the fact that she had all this money didn't help that much. Mm. You know, she should have been able to kind of, you know, live free and independent once she inherited her money. But she sort of drifted around Yorkshire and she said in her letters that like I, I can't live anywhere else because I don't know anyone and if you don't know anyone you can't be introduced to anyone you can't make any new friends so it's hard for us to to imagine that kind of social pressure to you know have this network always cocooning you as a young woman um so I think that is a theme in the novel and so is the question of of being an oddity because Anne Lister as I've said was very unusual in being so sort of proud of her differences um but Eliza Rain finds it really quite a strain to be the one that people exoticize or or consider you know the 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 outsider the other the the, the racialized exotic so um and yeah that's that's one of the main themes of the book is the the pros and cons of being different as opposed to being you know accepted and, and safe tell me a little bit about the challenges of uh staying within the lines when you're dealing with historical fact you have uh, a lot of background material here letters and the diaries and the whole thing but you're a novelist as well so how tempting is it to wander off the path a little bit uh and and create uh parts of the story that that weren't necessarily true Sure. And um, actually, in this case, I held myself to a very high standard of, of sort of accuracy because the, the scholarship is really beginning to boom around Anne Lister and her lovers. So I didn't want to invent some background for Eliza, which would then be proved wrong in six months time when somebody tracks down her mother. So I really tried to work within the facts. But I, I supplemented, of course, for instance, when I wanted to give them interesting schoolmates, because I knew I wanted this to feel like a real boarding school novel with a community, not just two girls and then a sort of blur. So um, I, I, with the help of people I met on Twitter, fellow scholars I've never actually met in person, um, I found a couple of facts about each of the girls who were their age at school. Um, but for instance, I wanted there to be one girl in there who was a scholarship kid um, who didn't have money. I wanted that working class perspective. So I just invented one. So that would be an example of where you have the the the, the true historical figures side by side with an invented one. Um, luckily, I didn't know that much about the specifics of what happened to Anne and Eliza at school because nobody ever thought to record much about what it was like at the manor school. I had some fascinating sources like real graffiti that scratched on the windows of that mm -hmm. school. You can go to York now and visit the um, the King's Manor and you'll see little messages that the girls over the centuries scrawled on the wow. windows saying which teachers they liked or you know how come we don't get to go to the play one of the most <laughs> timeless complaints of board school yeah. girls um so so I did have some sources and I, I looked at lots of other memoirs of girls schools at the time but luckily I didn't know you know what play did they go see or even when their holidays were and um you know 
I, I didn't know, for instance, exactly how long Anne and Eliza each spent at the school or who got there first. There's so much that nobody bothered to record because it was just girls, you know. So actually, I was I was quite free to make things up. You're listening to Emma Donahue on The Richard Krauss Show. Her new novel, Learned by Heart, is available wherever you buy fine books. Why is this novel so important right now as we sit here in 2023? Well, it's funny, you know, when I was when I was first thinking of writing about it, I, I never thought there'd be any particular kind of political edge to publishing a novel about two teenagers falling in love. But in the current climate, especially in the states of, say, book burning and and what I could only call a, a moral panic about children and what they're being exposed to mm. and, and, and challenges to books that have any um uh, gender questioning or any LGBTQ plus content, it turns out it is quite political to simply say, you know, people have always fallen in love with who they've fallen in love with and to take that seriously. So so it's odd that, a you know, a period drama, a love story set in 1805 um, would take on the sort of political edge. But I think it really does at a moment when, you know, I've, I've heard American publishers say that some of their revenue streams are just drying up because librarians are afraid to order these books. How important would this book have been to you growing up in Ireland, Catholic Ireland, uh, in the 1980s, which you say was rather <laughs> like the 19th century? It uh, would have been heavenly, I have to admit. I mean, <laughs> when I, I, I still remember individual books I came across, like um, Rita Mae Brown's Ruby Fruit Jungle, and just that that air of sort of insouciance, you know, the kind of, hey, I seem to have fallen for a girl. Um, just that that blithe tone was just heaven to me because, yes, 1980s Ireland, um, we had things like, you know, mass hysteria about statues of the Virgin Mary moving and weeping. So I did sometimes feel like I'm trapped in the 19th century. Get me out of here. Um, but I, I always found literature such a refuge, you know, writing of all kinds and books of all kinds. But I suppose particularly when I came across anything with even a, a hint of the queer about it, I would sort of feel like, oh, my people exist. We've always existed. So it's hugely helpful. Um, this is why I love when I read about libraries, say, you know, the Brooklyn Library that give, a, you know, a library card to any kid in America who needs it and let them borrow ebooks of any kinds because, um, you know, books are, are a lifeline for so many. I was just in Dublin. I understand that uh, the attitudes and things have changed a great deal. Uh, there is that your take on it? Oh, so much. I mean, for instance, I think Ireland was the first country to bring in equal marriage for same-sex and opposite-sex couples by um, popular referendum. Yeah, yeah. There have been many moments over the last 30 years when I felt so proud um, of Ireland for for remaking itself. You see, it's a small, intimate, chatty country. And so when we do get around to having the big conversations, we can change our minds overnight because, you know, when you get the Irish mammy on board and the Irish mammy realizes that she might have a gay son or a gay cousin, you know, suddenly then you're one of the family. Um, and I think there's been an, just unrecognizable changes in the last 30 years. Um, so I feel very much part of things there now. And I still I make I do plays in Ireland and I make films with Irish companies. And I still I still get to be part of that culture while abroad, which is which is bombed my soul, really, because, you know, I, I like the interest of having lived in other countries. I've lived in England and now in Canada, but you don't want to feel you've lost your homeland either. My favorite thing that happened to me while I was there, my wife and I were sitting at some little pub that we came across and we ordered two pints of Guinness and we both went to reach for them as they were put on the bar. And there was an, uh, a, an older woman sitting next to me who slapped my hand and said, they're not ready yet. <laughs> I and love she it. Made, she for made your own good, she slapped they hand. Settled. 
I, I love that intimacy. Yes, it was my yes. favorite thing that happened the whole when time. I was, there. When I was last home, I went on the um, Irish literary pub crawl where they, you know, actors right. recite to you things as you go from pub to pub. And I, I won the quiz and I thought he hadn't recognized me. You know, I said I was Emma from Canada and I won the quiz. And then at the end, he leaned over and he whispered to me, love the books. <laughs> and I realized he was just doing that great Irish thing of not sucking up to the famous. You know, right. not embarrassing them. <laughs> <laughs> well, Emma, thank you so much. What a pleasure to speak to you. It's been a treat. That was Emma Donahue on The Richard Krause Show. Her new novel, Learned by Heart, is available wherever you buy fine books. Big thanks to Emma for stopping by. Also, a big thanks to the legendary Ken Dryden for stopping by and telling us about his book, The Class, a memoir of a place, a time, and us. Of course, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay safe, stay healthy, stay weird, and we'll talk again soon. Mm-hmm.